0: This is Jewish Board Talk with Sharice Zephyr only on 101.9 High FM.
1: Paul Treweller is an anti-apartheid struggle activist. He, together with Eli Weinberg, Norman Levy, Esther Basel, and Lewis Baker, among others, was sentenced to prison following the Brahm-Fisher trial. The trial was primarily an attempt to remove and imprison the leadership of the SACP. Paul spent time in prison in Joburg and Pretoria. As a journalist, Paul worked with Ruth first in underground journalism in 1963. He edited the journal of Umkhonto we Sizwe during the Rivonia trial. Later, together with his fellow prisoner Baruch Herson, edited the banned exile magazine Searchlight South Africa. He visited. He is based in the UK, but he visited South Africa to see his friends. And while here, he agreed to talk to me on High FM. Paul, welcome and thank you so much for joining me.
0: Ah, thank you, Cherise. It's a great pleasure.
1: Paul, I recognized your name for a while now because you write quite extensively, um, in South African media about some of your experiences. More recently, you paid tribute to your longtime friend, Hugh Lewin. Um, what were those days like? A
0: big thing to understand from the standpoint of today is what an enormous step it was after the Sharpeville massacre for both uh, the Southern Communist Party and the ANC which came together, and for that matter for the Pan-Africanist Congress, which had only very recently been formed. And uh, to a certain degree also for members, former, uh, mainly younger members of the Liberal Party and a few trustees such as my friend uh, Baruch Hursen and, uh, and, 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 and my friend Roman Eisenstein uh, who formed what became called the African Resistance Movement which uh, set out to sabotage pylons and, 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 and uh, objects but not to hurt humans right um but 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 the difficulty is to remember what an enormous step that was against such a powerful armed e- and effective oppressive state which had a very active and capable security department and it had a top rate military and so um uh, it, it The acknowledgement after the Sharpeville massacre that the former decades of peaceful protest and opposition could not work any longer, considering uh, that so many people had been killed in an anti-pass demonstration at Sharpeville, and that in future uh, the target had to be the overthrow of this racist state, starting from a situation of having very, very little in the way of uh, armaments and very, very little in the way of experience of mm-hmm. how to, how to survive underground. So it, it, it was a very challenging time, but um, a, a, a significant number of people ent- took up that challenge with uh, great courage and uh, with a, a, a very optimistic view that there would be victory uh, in the end, at whatever cost it was going to be. Um, to a certain degree, there was underestimating, uh, underestimation of uh, uh, the effectiveness of the security department so that uh, uh, people were not actually fully prepared for torture by a long way. They hadn't experienced it before. They didn't know what it could do. And um, uh, um, it certainly did a great deal of Damage in, uh, with people revealing information.
1: So let's look at that time. I mean, you were, um, firstly, you, how, how old were you when you became involved?
0: I became involved in uh, 1962 when I was 20.
1: So you're 20 years old, very young by all standards, very idealistic and you believed obviously in what you were fighting for, but you were also very naive. You were arrested, you were sent to prison. What what were those experiences like?
0: I was naive and I wasn't naive in a kind of way you had to learn quickly. Uh, The hardest part um, was there were many different forms of torture. And this was always the most difficult experience. After you were arrested under the 90-day detention law, uh, which later got extended, um, to 180 days and For some people it could be almost like eternity You could be detained In solitary confinement And then brought uh, For interrogation By the security police Some people were beaten up uh, and, and physically assaulted What was more normal for <coughs> Most of my white male colleagues uh, And myself was uh, having been brought to Pretoria local prison uh, for ninety day detention, then to be taken to compol buildings in Pretoria, which was the buildings for the commission of police that 's where the word compol came from and uh, at, at high up uh, at, at, a, at a high story in in the building to be uh, 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 forced to stand in a square for uh, indefinite detentions, uh, sleep deprivation and um, uh, this went on could go on for a very very long time. Uh, uh, in my case I, I I got through three days and nights the first time, being allowed by uh, one security policeman to sit down a, a couple of times uh, at at night. Um, and then resumed the standing torture. Then I was I was taken back to my cell in Pretoria a local prison, without having made a statement. And then about a week later, I was taken back there again. And this time, I went through forty hours of standing, of standing. torture. Standing torture. And the big thing about that was, and it happened with a number of different people. It could be that if you carried on in that way for too long, you you would lose your mind. Mm. And under those circumstances, what did happen was that people gave information which maybe they would not have given under other circumstances. So uh, uh, in in my own case, uh, I tried to learn as much from my enemies over that time as I could. Um, And uh, if you are in the presence of uh, a a, a group of men over that lengthy period of time, they sometimes get into their own uh, affairs and they start talking and discussing their own things. And then maybe if you're lucky, you can pick up something that they know so that you're interrogating them instead of the other way around. And in that way, uh, I was able to uh, – I, I realized that there was absolutely no chance of evading a conviction in my own case. I knew I, I, I knew of three people who were going to give evidence against me and our colleagues in our trial. So the thing I had to do then was to try to work out in advance when I was going to make a statement, how could I do it in such a way I didn't implicate anybody who wow. could be arrested which I was able to do, fortunately. Um, um, and the three people in this case, they had uh, placed one security police uh, operative. I don't think he was actually a security policeman, but he was certainly an operative of theirs uh, as a member of our cell. So this person had known about us for a long time, and actually the security police could have arrested us quite a long time previously. They waited until nearly a whole month after the end of the Rivonia trial before they picked us up. But They could actually have picked us up earlier. <laughs> they were uh, keeping an eye on us and, and keeping a check on us, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And they were very confident they could pick us up when they wanted. Then the second person was uh, a young German man who uh, was a member of the, 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 the apartheid regime security police who they placed in a flat next door to the person in whose flat in Hillbrow we ha- had uh, held our meetings most frequently, and this person recorded those meetings. Mm. Well, that was that, you know.
1: So you must have not trusted anybody, Paul, in those days.
0: Uh, I wouldn't say that. Um, uh, there were um, close friends who I trusted strongly. But you had to keep your eyes and ears open, and we certainly trusted uh, uh, Gerard Ludy, the, the, the security operative who was in ourselves far too much. <laughs> so, <laughs> If anything, <laughs> too much trust was a problem, yeah. but you had to trust, and trust was justified most of the time most in relation time. to you know, our our, our friends and comrades.
1: Um, Paul, there are so many stories that we could touch on, but um, perhaps in the remaining two minutes we've got, you can talk about Ruth first and what it was like to work with her in the underground.
0: Um, I I only began working with Ruth in the second half of 1962. So I didn't have a long period of time working with her. I had um, been... Uh, uh, arrested uh, uh, twice and put on trial twice in Cape Town in my first job working for the Star on the uh, on, on the August Company's journalist training course in Cape Town um, in the, the, the early months of 1962, and I then got sacked. <laughs> and, Not surprising. And I came up to Joburg, <laughs> and uh, so I made contact with Ruth at the New Age office just very shortly before the the, the newspaper New Age was banned, um but the, the, the most and, and, and there, there were a number of h- helpful things. Ruth uh arranged for me to attend the uh, trial of Nelson Mandela in Pretoria for having left the country illegally uh and and for um having um uh, organized uh, illegal activity. Uh, and, 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 and so that that was a major occasion. But the most important thing was when Ruth asked me to uh, write a leaflet for the Communist Party and the ANC, as it happened, um, which was published in May 1963 um, with the title of the ANC Spearheads Revolution, Le Ballot, question mark, no. Hmm. So it, it set out the broad uh, armed struggle uh, philosophy of Mkonto Siswe and contrasted it with that of POKO, which was the military wing of the Pan-Africanist Congress. And so that was uh, distributed um, just uh, two months before the, the raid on Lily's Leaf Farm at Rivonia, where the um, Mkonto Esizwe High Command was more or less completely wiped out by being arrested, uh, leading to the Rivonia trial. Um, Ruth, shortly after that, was herself arrested and imprisoned for 117 days uh, and then released. And uh, she had been allowed, after her release, to leave the country uh, with um, her, 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 her daughters, uh, her and Joe daughters. Ruth came to see me at uh, my flat in Hilbra. She looked awful. She was absolutely ashen-faced. She'd been through a horrible experience. I only found out much later that she, I think it might be that she had even attempted suicide under detention. And she, she told me that she was going to be leaving but that I would be contacted by somebody else at some time for future activity. Um, and um, that, uh, what then happened, it took quite a long time before I was contacted But I was finally contacted by Hilda Bernstein Whose husband uh, Rusty Bernstein was one of the people On trial Along with uh, Madiba And Walter Sisulu, and Governor Becky, Amit Kathrada, Dennis Goldberg And others um, Facing uh, The What we considered to be the extreme likelihood Of the death sentence <laughs> And uh, Hilda uh, Hilda Bernstein asked me to edit uh, a news sheet uh, for Mkontri where, which we decided to give the title of Freedom Fighter to. Um, and uh, so I, I – I, and by that time, I, I was working as a professional journalist for um, – uh, th- for the Rant Daily Mail And after that I, I became Africa editor for A news magazine called News Check uh, Edited by a man called Otto Krause So I was working Legally and I was working illegally At the same time <laughs> And um, we managed to bring out Four issues of Freedom Fighter I never saw one single Copy Just as I never I, I, I was only shown one copy of that leaflet uh, the ANC Spearheads Revolution, which I destroyed. F- that meant, fortunately, there was no evidence when the police came to arrest me later. And and so I was never charged for that. Um, there were two people who who, who also and uh, w- uh, 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 did writing for a Freedom Fighter. One was Barbara Harmel, the daughter of Michael Harmel, uh, who had gone into exile, one of the top SACP people. And uh, her partner, who later became her husband, um, uh, uh, Jeff, 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 Jeff. Oh, the name is just escaped me. However, this guy, amazingly, having been in detention in, 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 uh, over July and August, 1964 later, and being released without evidence, later went on to become Vice President of the World Bank. Jeff wow. Lamb. Wow. Jeff wow. Lamb. Amazing. Yeah. An extraordinary journey. And he later went on to work for, um, Um, uh, in in California for for, for one of the very big institutions.
1: Okay, so we're going to take a break now, um, Paul and after the break we can look at maybe um, some of the lefty Jewish characters that populated our history at the time.
0: Great. This is Jewish Board Talk with Sharice Zephardt only on 101.9 High FM.
1: I'm talking to Paul Truella, who is an anti-apartheid struggle activist. Um, j- as a journalist, Paul worked with Ruth First in the underground journalism um, in 1963, and he also edited Mkanta Uh Paul, we were talking a little bit about your experiences, but I know you also mixed with, at that time, some fascinating characters in the Jewish left.
0: Absolutely. What, what, what was quite extraordinary in a pretoria local prison uh, where the white male convicted political prisoners um, were were housed from uh, uh 1963 and 1964 onwards uh is that the the jewish prisoners were a very high proportion of the total uh population of white male political prisoners out of all proportion to the num- to the proportion of jews in the country as a whole and um uh, i think that um jewish people played uh, an extremely uh, important and again numerically disproportionate role in the struggle over that period and possibly and probably subsequently too um i think probably there was no other place in the world in um, countries in which English was the predominant language of overall political communication in which Jews played such a significant role in proportion to their numbers and um, there were some quite outstanding human beings in this um, broad grouping of people and the person I'm thinking of first is Ellie Weinberg. Ellie and his wife, Violet Weinberg, they're, they're big photographs of them uh, in, in the form of Fort Prison at, at, at Constitution Hill, uh, which one can see. And the, Ellie had had an extraordinary life. He'd been born in Latvia in 1908, um, yeah, in Riga on the coast, the capital Riga, and, um, the, the major language in Latvia, I understand, was, uh, German. Uh, Russia was next door, so people often spoke Russia. Uh, I think he, he, he would have been familiar with Yiddish. Uh, he certainly, uh, knew Hebrew and he he'd been, uh, 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 trained and schooled in Hebrew. <coughs> but in the summer of 1914, Ellie was sent by his parents or was brought by his parents to spend the summer holidays with an uh, uh, an auntie in the interior to the east. And so he was not in Riga when the First World War broke out. The German army invaded very quickly and occupied Riga. So Eli was cut off from his parents. (laughs) And what then happened in the, the place where he was staying, it must have been a place on the railway line, quite a big place. I don't know the name of it. Uh, but Ellie used to spend his time playing out on the streets with with the other little boys. He was age six at that time. And they used to hang around the barracks of the Cossacks of the Russian army who were uh, 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 mounted on horseback. And obviously, it was very exciting and interesting for the little boys. And then one day, the Cossacks got a, were on their horses and they uh, 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 rode off. In the direction of the railway station, and Ellie and some of the other little boys followed them, and the horses were installed on a carriage in a carriage on uh, on, on a train, and Ellie got onto the train and he doing all kinds of interesting little things. And of course, the train pulled off, hmm. and so at the age of six, Ellie was uh, take, uh, was taken into the interior of the Russian Empire, into Russia itself, together with the Cossacks and for a period of time exactly how long i don't know he was a mascot of the cossacks and they actually mm. looked after him <laughs> and ellie saw a great deal of the uh, of the uh, uh, bombings and artillery and the killings and the dying of the first world war as a little boy at 6 and <laughs> um, eventually what happened things obviously the, and the russian army uh, 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 was in a lot of trouble and disintegrated and he must have been sent out by the Cossacks to steal food for them. Mm. And uh, that that's how eventually he was returned to his family. Mm. And um, uh, he, he was uh, trying to steal an apple from what he called a Jewish market. And as he was, as his hand was on the apple, the old lady who owned the stall who banged his hand with a stick. And Ellie screamed out. And uh, that's and she said, "Oh, you're a Jewish boy," <laughs> and that's how he was eventually returned to his parents. Somehow. What
1: a fascinating story!
0: Another one of our colleagues in in Pretoria Local Prison, in uh, between 1965, uh, when we were convicted, and 1967, when I was released, was uh, my dear friend Roman Eisenstein. Roman was born in Warsaw uh in uh, uh uh in 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 the mid 1930s and uh as a little boy in warsaw he saw the very first day of the second world war when warsaw was bombed he remembers seeing uh, a dead horse in the street he uh, he and his father were sheltered and and kept in uh, in safety By his mother, a remarkable woman who I met uh, twice, Guta, who was blonde and who managed to get to false papers and had enough money to pay people uh, for their upkeep. They were looked after by both Catholic and communist families uh, at at different times under extreme danger. And whoever looked after them would have been uh, uh, executed had they been caught by the Nazis. But Roman remembered seeing the the burning of the Warsaw Ghetto. Mm. It was the one time he saw his mother crying because the family was so terrified they wanted uh, her to take them away immediately. And she persuaded the family to keep them just for another 24 hours. And she'd found another place by that time Mm. to take them. And he remembers the very last day of the war because he'd been keeping an eye on a, a, a German army soldier who was sitting on a stool outside the place where they were hiding. And then all of a sudden the soldier disappeared And Roman went out and he stole the stool. (laughs) After that, uh, 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 Roman's parents uh, uh, brought him uh, in 1946 to Paris. That was after uh, a pogrom had taken place, uh, uh, after the German army had had, uh, retreated from Warsaw under pressure of of, of the uh, Soviet Red Army. Uh, uh it was carried out in a, a polish village and the family decided not to stay any longer and they went to paris so roman had for what was for him a most entrancing and wow. fantastic uh, uh, growing up into his teenage years in paris at the time of jean paul sartre and albert camus and all of uh, all of, of of that culture around him and then the family moved to johannesburg and roman went to vitz and uh, uh, together with uh, his older colleague, uh, Baruch Hurson, he joined this uh, uh, non-communist, in fact, anti-communist, uh, 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 anti-apartheid uh, uh, sabotage organization called the African Resistance Movement. And so Roman uh, was, a f- was convicted in the same time as Baruch and my friend Hugh Lewin. Um, but while he was in prison... His remarkable mother, Gutta, went to see, uh, the Minister of Justice, John Forster, who became later President, and she gave him an instruction, which was a remarkable instruction given to someone who had been imprisoned during World War II uh, for his pro-Nazi sympathies. And she said, if you do not release my son, I'm going to go to Israel and I'm going to denounce you. And he released Roman.
1: It's an incredible. <laughs> Paul, you have the most incredible stories and I wish we had time for more but have you written a memoir? I have not. Will you write a memoir? You write incredibly beautifully.
0: I have a difficulty about writing a memoir. Uh, I don't quite know what the reason is. I've been asked about this previously. I'm happy to talk about it. I'm happy to write individual pieces. I, am just, I don't feel comfortable about writing a memoir and uh, I don't know why it is. I think possibly there is there are possibly an overweight of memoirs by members of the former white. Yes. Left. Right. And um, I, I just don't feel it's right for me. I don't uh, I don't criticize other people. It's not right for me.
1: Paul, thank you so much for taking the time to share these stories. I have so many more questions (laughs) I would like to ask you, and we're going to have to kind of shelve it possibly for another time, maybe when you're next back here, or maybe we can talk to you while you're in the UK because we haven't even touched on why you left communism. Um, <laughs> but we, we uh, Yeah, but maybe uh, we can pick that up I'd, at I'd, a later stage.
0: I'd, I'd be delighted. And thank you, Cherise.
1: Thank you so much. That uh, was, with pleasure. That was Paul Truella, who is an anti-apartheid struggle activist, and he very kindly shared some of his memories of that time.